2 Corinthians, Paul here is writing uh, by way of intro. We know he wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus. He said that in 1 Corinthians 16. But he was driven out of there shortly. And he traveled to Troas, intending to revisit a bunch of the churches in Macedonia that he had planted. And he was going to go back to Corinth. That's where we kind of left off at the end of 1 Corinthians. Paul had planned to meet with Titus at Troas, but it didn't work out. He meets with them somewhere else along the line. We don't exactly know where, but 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that Titus came back. And he came back to Paul with mostly good news about 1 Corinthians, about what he had written to this church. And the majority of the church, the mostly good news was, the majority of the church had received 1 Corinthians well. They understood Paul's instruction. They understood Paul's heart. They took that man who Paul commanded them to put under church discipline, and they did that. They had received, again, a lot of his instruction, some of that very difficult moments of correction. But the, the end kind of not great news was there was still a smaller segment of the church that was attacking Paul personally, attacking his apostleship, attacking his ministry. This group of, seems like, mostly false teachers who still had a bit of influence. So uh, Paul eventually did go to Corinth, Acts chapter 20, tells us in the first three verses, and he stayed there for three months. So the writing of 1 Corinthians to him getting there, people argue, but it's somewhere around like half a year so in the interval between writing 1 Corinthians, Titus, take, or Titus taking it and coming back with news to Paul, to Paul's getting to Corinth himself, somewhere in that interval, because there was some time there, he wrote 2 Corinthians. He wanted to respond to them. He, he was glad that he heard that they had received 1 Corinthians well. He wanted to share some things on his own heart. So that's what this letter comes out of. Uh, I think it's important because there's some other details there that we're not sure of. We know he sent Timothy to Corinth as well. Um, we don't know what Timothy's info was when he came back to Paul. We're going to see right in verse 1 that they're together. So he gave him some type of report. It was probably much the same as Titus's, but we don't have a lot of information on that. But what, what we do know gives us at least the background of this. As Paul's writing this letter, he's writing to a majority acceptance and a minority conflict. Before, there was a lot of issues. But now, he's basically, I think, knows that these people were on the same page, were working together, they know his heart. So, it's because of that different type of character, the letter of 2 Corinthians is very different than 1 Corinthians. If you've begun to read through it, and I encourage you to read through it, familiarize yourself with it as we go through it. But uh, 1 Corinthians is very kind of logical, step by step. Paul takes issue by issue. He literally is responding, now concerning, now concerning things that they wrote to him. 2 Corinthians is much more free-flowing. Paul's going back and forth between issues, tying things together, sharing his heart, really, in a lot of ways, because he knows there's a different ground they're fellowshipping on. And it's because of that that in this letter, most people would agree, we see Paul's heart, his life, his personal ministry and walk with the Lord, maybe more than any other letter except for maybe Second Timothy. So there's a lot of a pathos behind what Paul is writing here and the way he talks with them. And because of that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very organic letter, I guess I could say it like that. J.I. Packer's got a very, had a very logical, uh, refined mind, said it was a harrowing letter to read because of that. You're coming to a guy's heart as he's sharing here, but inspired by the Spirit. So... With that said, if you're an outline person, I'll give you a general outline here, although outlines aren't great on this book, but so I'm going to give you something half-hearted, I guess. I mean, that's a bad intro for an outline. But chapters 1 through 5, you could call explanation, and we see Paul's heart as a minister. 
chapters 6 through 9 are exhortation, and we see Paul's heart as a spiritual father. And chapters 10 through 13, we have vindication, where we see Paul as the apostle, having to kind of defend himself toward the end of the letter. So that's a general kind of breakdown and the background of the writing here that will give us some context for it. And Again, as you, if you're a person who's thinking critically, it will give you some understanding as to why this letter is so very different than the first. So let's begin. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very typical kind of Pauline greeting here. He again says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He states that very clearly in a number of places. Particularly here, I think it's important because we're going to see again, there's a segment that is challenging his apostleship and challenging the way he does ministry. And it's important, we're all going to face criticism in life, and it's important that uh, whatever you're doing and who you are, you know you're that because of God and not because of anybody else. And Paul can just easily state, he's an apostle by the will of God. He didn't even choose it himself. This is something that God did in his life and was doing through him. And he was confident and safe in that. And he says, Timothy, our brother. Timothy mentioned, no doubt, because he was just with the church at Corinth not long ago. His presence would give credence to some of Paul's responses and some of the issues that he's dealing with. He says it is to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So it was a larger area. This would go to Corinth, but Achaia was basically southern Greece. Corinth was the chief city. So it would go beyond just that one city. And he says, of course, graced you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Paul knew quite well, you're not going to find grace and peace anywhere else on the face of the earth than through God the Father and through Jesus Christ. I think it's also worth noting, Paul it always emphasizes these family bonds in this language. Notice, just as he's writing, Timothy, our brother, all the saints, they're all connected. He's not leaving anybody out there. God our Father, right? There's this constant kind of, and it's a wonderful uh, view of the body of Christ from Paul the Apostle. He's including everybody, a lot of people who are even his crit critics, many who were just misunderstanding things because they were immature in Christ, those who were mature in Christ, those who loved in him and he got along with, and those who were believers that maybe he didn't quite get along with. He's, he constantly understood and came from this basis of, the brotherhood of Christ is a reality because of the work of God, not because of his practical experience of it. And he lived in that reality. He wasn't waiting to see, well, if you guys respond well, then we're brothers in Christ. He stated the facts of this. That was the basis, the way he looked at other believers constantly. And I love that emphasis that we see in his language. Now, he's going to step into some of this letter verse 3, and uh, he's going to talk about, these verses are very familiar, I think, to, to many of us, comfort in suffering, something Paul knew a lot about, and they're important because he's going to teach us something about the way God does this. So let's read down a bit. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is also for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Paul 
Very different again from 1 Corinthians. Instead of going to the divisions in the church, hey, I hear from Chloe, you guys are all divided and fighting. He wants to go right to talking about God's comfort for them in sufferings. Paul himself is going to talk about what he was suffering, but he's encouraged that God is meeting them in their hardships. And he wants to talk about that a little bit. He starts by saying, verse 3, I'll read 3 and 4 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those uh, who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Blessed is a unique Greek word there. It has the idea of praise. It's not like the blessed from the Sermon on the Mount. It's used only of God in the New Testament. Like when the high priest looks at Jesus, it says, he kept silent and answered nothing. And the high priest asked him, saying, are you, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Right? Speaking of God. Are you, are you claiming deity here? It was something that was unique to him. And the word has the idea of God being worthy of praise. And he's saying, this God who's worthy of praise is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. Mercies has the idea of compassion. It said in Daniel 9.9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. God is the one who owns mercy that he can give to rebellious children. He's the father of all mercies. Right? Usually the idea of being rebellious to make you run away from God, Paul is saying, no, he's the only one who can give the mercy a rebellious child needs. Not only that, he's the God of all comfort. Comfort is periclesis as the idea really of encouragement your bible might say encouragement or coming alongside of someone to hold them up acts 436 Josie's who was also named barnabas by the apostles which is translated son of encouragement it's the same word there barnabas was the guy who came alongside of other people and encouraged them he was the first one that came alongside of paul when he had just changed from Saul and nobody else wanted to hang out with him because they're like, maybe he's going to kill us. I don't want to be his friend yet until I realize he doesn't kill his friends. Right? Barnabas was the one that came alongside and encouraged him. When they had that issue with John Mark, he left them behind. Barnabas was the one who would come alongside John Mark again to encourage him. He's a picture of someone who comes alongside to help. We also know this is the role spoken of by Jesus Christ of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the same word, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The God of all comfort, the God of all coming alongside and encouraging, like a Barnabas, the promise of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul Paul wants their mind first and foremost to be going there. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. Tribulation is a word that means uh, the same thing Jesus, when he talks about that of a woman in labor. It's that word there who forgets that tribulation once the child is born, where he says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Problems, difficulties, hardship. Really, if you read down from 4 through 8, there's a lot of different words, suffering, affliction, in our English. In the Greek, there's five different words Paul uses for various troubles. Each has their own kind of slant on what troubles would be. So what he's doing is he's giving us a broad spectrum of hard times in life. It's, 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 it's tribulation that comes to us in a whole bunch of different ways. How, how life can be difficult, and the idea is, this God of all comfort and mercy, his comfort covers all of it. Whatever kind of slant of trouble or tribulation that you are facing, this God is going to cover all of those things. Now, of course, we might wish the passage say, the God of all comfort who comforts us by keeping us from all tribulation. But it doesn't say that. It says he comforts us in that tribulation, the deliverance from all trouble and hardship 
has never been the Bible's promise until heaven. That's in a new world where there's never going to be sin or death or crying or pain, the new heavens and earth, then we're good. But until then, he says, you will have tribulation in this world. But be of good cheer. I have overcome. It doesn't have to win in essence. So I think it's important as we look here, if God's not promising us deliverance from all our tribulations, he does deliver us from some. But if he doesn't promise deliverance from all tribulations, and if he doesn't promise miracles for every problem, like some people say, if you just had enough faith, that's not what he's saying here. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. If God has to give comfort, he's inferring that there's difficulties, that there's tribulations. What he is promising is comfort and encouragement that holds up and overflows in and through all tribulations. And I think why it's important to see is because we're all going to face, obviously, trials and tribulations in life, already have, and will continue to. And a lot of people stumble or they're offended because of false expectations and what God's comfort and deliverance is supposed to look like. Even very godly individuals through the scripture had expectations that weren't meant. I, Elijah, expectations that weren't meant. He thought God was going to work in other ways. And then finally, he's like, God, just kill me. John the Baptist, Jesus has to say to him, blessed are those whosoever are not offended in me. He's a godly man. But God's comfort wasn't coming to him in the way he thought it should. And all of us, if these men could have that struggle, can have that same struggle. So I think it's important to see what is God telling us about this God of all comfort. What does he tell us about his comfort? How does it work? What does it look like in our lives? What is he teaching us? And so the first and foremost thing is, again, that he is the father and the God of all comfort. Primarily, our comfort comes from God. He possesses it himself. He says it's mine. I am the God of all comfort who will bring that comfort in all our tribulation. So we see all trials meeting the resources of the all-sufficient one. Right? That's, that's what's coming together here. First and foremost, we see him and him in, that, him in that action. So the comfort again, even the word itself, that he's offering is a coming alongside, an encouragement in the middle of those difficulties and hardships through the work of the Holy Spirit. As he promised, we see this in the book of Acts. Again, if you look up the word, their comfort, you see it playing out in that early church. What did those early church believers know about the comfort of God? We're told in Acts 9.31, this is right after Saul becomes Paul, the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied facing a lot of persecution. But there was comfort through the Holy Spirit. Their circumstances weren't great. Many of them were being thrown out of their families, threatened by the religious leadership, overturning their total cultural narrative, who they knew themselves to be, losing friendships, relationships, There was a lot of difficult circumstances, but there was a comfort that came to them from outside of themselves and outside of their present circumstances. It was a comfort from the Holy Spirit, a comfort that came from beyond the natural, from the supernatural. And what God wants us to know about the type of comfort that he offers is it is supernatural. It comes from more than just our present circumstances. More than just the practical, immediate circumstances of our life. It can be stronger than, transcendent, overcome our present circumstances. That's 
what we see in the beginning. Paul would pray for the believers in Thessalonica that face a lot of persecution. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 say, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, is the same word, and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. I love that's a beautiful picture. The comfort that comes from God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ is a comfort that is based on everlasting things. May he give us everlasting consolation. It's not the type of comfort that's fleeting. It's the type of comfort that is built upon everlasting things. It means it can't be stolen or drained by natural things because it's supernatural and it's everlasting. The writer to the Hebrews, who were as well persecuted, says that by two immutable things in Hebrews 6.18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, that's the same word, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. He says the comfort is strong, it's not weak. It's not the type of comfort that's too weak to deal with the realities of life. He would say to the Hebrews, you rejoice in the spoiling of your own goods. You, you believed in a better and enduring substance. It was strong consolation that we have in him because God is strong. He's immutable. He's unchanging. And because he's unchanging, he can't lie. Therefore, our comfort is unchanging and can't be false. And I think it's important to see these things because if I don't see this, the question is, do I begin seeking comfort from a natural source or from the Holy Spirit? Am I seeking comfort from family or friends or immediate circumstances or from the supernatural work of God? Am I seeking my comfort from passing things or everlasting things? If I seek my comfort from passing things, I'm looking at comfort from money, homes, jobs, alcohol, drugs, apes, weed, right? A whole bunch of things, but then it's over. I use this thing and then it's gone. Or it can be taken like that. Or I know it's not going to last. It's just going to cover for a moment. Am I seeking comfort from God in everlasting things or in material things? Am I seeking comfort in things that are weak in the flesh or strong in God and his word? Weak things like music, movies, sentimental moments. People seek comfort in a lot of these things. You can have a feeling and you can have a nice feeling that covers up a bad feeling for a little bit, but you don't actually get comforted because, again, it's gone. It's passing. You're right back in that same scenario. You haven't actually touched the supernatural or the everlasting or the things that are strong. And if I'm seeking comfort that's not from the God of all comfort, I'm not going to find what he's promised. That's why it's important. And what happens is we could just take this for granted. Like God can comfort me in the ways that I want. It doesn't always work out like that. And there's a lot of like weird emotional messages like that in the Christian world. But what this is telling us is God, who possesses all comfort himself, says, I will come alongside and encourage you, the work of my Holy Spirit, in every single type of trouble that can touch your life. And that is his promise, and it's where I'm supposed to look. And it's the only actual comfort there is. Other things might excuse or distract, but God is the God of all comfort, all encouragement, all coming alongside. And he wants to offer that to us. Now, is that to say human beings play no part, 
Certainly not. Again, look at verse 4. Paul makes it clear. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So through this whole section, really three through seven, we have the words us and we and are over and over again. You'll notice them repeated. The idea is this means of ministry in sharing compassion and encouragement is given to all of us. Paul's assuming believers are going to understand this and take part in it because there's no shortage of broken hearts in the world, broken homes in the world, broken lives in the world, broken fellowship in the world. It surrounds us. You don't have to go very far. And man, the minute people trust you, they like dumb stuff pretty early. You know, I was like jogging not that long ago and some dude just began running the same speed as me. <laughs> Started just talking with me and then he just starts talking about his life and his marriage is falling apart. Like people just pretty easy to start pouring stuff out. There, there's no shortage of finding these things. They, they're everywhere in the world that we live in. And the question is then, what type of comfort does God want us to give? Believer or unbeliever? What, what type of comfort does God want us to give? What does he want me to say to that person? How does he want me to respond to them? What does he want me to point them to? The sentimental movie I just saw? The music I like to listen to? Various program for them? And it's not that all those things are terrible. But the clear answer here is the comfort that we have first received from him as the God of all comfort. That's what Paul says. How do I comfort other people? How is, is my role supposed to be played in this process and in this ministry? Well, very clearly, I give what God has given to me. I give what is God's. I don't give my own. It's not mine. It came from him. And then I give what's his which is his coming alongside of us. To offer anything else is, in fact, actually to harm someone, not to help them. People don't need us. They need God. Sometimes we want to be needed. Some people need to be needed. But there's only one Savior, and it's not me, and it's not you. People need God. They need Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to these people, they have all types of serious problems. And he just keeps talking about God here. He puts their mind on God the Father. We give the comfort that God gives to us. We emulate the coming alongside of God. We encourage through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the everlasting nature of God's promises, and the inner strengthening that we have found in him. That was the whole point. Anybody could come to Paul in a difficulty, and how would Paul encourage that person? Exactly with what he's doing right here. He would say, God's your father. He has incredible mercies. He's the God of all. He can come alongside of you in this situation. He didn't, he didn't come with his own stuff. He came with what God had given to him in his own personal life and just pointed people back to that God. That was the whole point. Paul could look at anybody and say, I was never forsaken of God. I was never left to my own resources. I was never left to my own wisdom. He didn't abandon me to my own sin. He kept me even when I didn't see the whole plan. Right? That's the whole point. Back to God. I found God coming alongside of me. And now as I come alongside of somebody else, I point them to God the one who came alongside of me. That's the comfort that we're supposed to comfort other people with. We comfort others with God and in God. And it's not limited that way to only people who have gone through the same specific types of suffering, the loss of a spouse or martyrs or suicide or whatever those things might be. And it's wonderful when a person can do that with us, but the reality is, even, even in similar scenarios, no, no scenario is the same. You could just take the loss of a child, the, the loss of a child in a miscarriage versus the loss of a child 
in the mistake of having an abortion versus the loss of a child in a stillbirth brought to, to full term versus the loss of a child with SIDS in early life versus the loss of a child to cancer or strike gunshot in the city of Philadelphia versus the loss of a child in their teens to an accident or drowning versus the loss of a child in their 20s to fentanyl versus, the, right? I could just keep going. None of those are the same. They all have their own unique spectrum of suffering and trial and difficulty. But you know what the same thing is? It's just a person who can come to you and say, God met me in mine. The God of all comfort was real to me in mine. He could be real to you in yours. And the only difference is the person might listen to us a little bit more because of that. But the truth isn't any different. The truth is the same. Where the comfort comes from is the same. And it's wonderful if we can trust someone more than another because of a similar experience. But the God of all comfort is the one who brings the comfort. We don't. He does. And we're getting people to him. It's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. It's wonderful when a human being can come alongside of us can put their arm around us when we're having a hard day, when something's difficult. And we know that person can't solve our issue. And it's still wonderful to have that encouragement. But God is the one who can come alongside somebody, sympathize with them, and actually solve their issue if he wants to. He, he is the one who can meet people perfectly. And that's why our job is simply to get other people to him. That's how we comfort other people. We're no man's savior, but we do know who is. And we point people to him. I'll just say there's another weird idea out there sometimes that only someone who has sinned can comfort or encourage another sinner. Uh, But the truth is the Bible teaches us that it's the man with no sin who best sympathizes with our needs. Hebrews tells us, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I don't need a person to hang out with another sinner. I need the person to hang out with the sinless one. Right? That's that's what the goal is. This is how we bring comfort to people. This is how Paul knew to comfort these Corinthians who were going through their own issues. There is a God, and he is the God of all comfort and the father of all mercies for rebellious individuals. And he will comfort us in all our afflictions, any type of tribulation that you could lay out. He is sufficient and more so. And when we find that in him, then we just take that and go to others and just tell, I found living water. I found comfort in him. And we get people back to him. That's what our goal is. And guess what? If he can't comfort people, I definitely can't help you anyway. And if I make myself an essential nature to your comfort, then in fact I harm you because I become an idol in your life. And God needs to be the one who is central because he's the only one who's sufficient. And so Paul builds on this from his own experience, saying in verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. For if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul here speaks about the sufferings of Christ abounding in us there's a little question is he speaking of suffering for christ or suffering with christ the suffering of christ himself that was true paul knew he had heard that voice saul saul why are you persecuting me i am jesus whom you are persecuting paul knew that jesus christ in some way suffers in his church that was a truth but i think this is probably one of those both and type of questions because paul also joined and he knew it was literally a personal call of his god said i will show him how much he must suffer for my name 
Paul knew he was joining in that, the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He talks about it, Acts 9.16, Philippians 3.10, Colossians 1.24. Part of Paul's service to God was that he could look any other brother or sister in the face that was going through tribulation, and he could confidently speak to them about the mercies of God. And that's why I said, when I go through suffering, when we go through sufferings, when we receive consolation, it's also for you. He was willing to suffer for other believers. That's what Jesus did. He came and he suffered for the benefit of others. He didn't need it, and he didn't suffer for his own sin. But he laid down this example, and Paul was willing to follow through on that. And when people would look at Paul and see the comfort of God come to him supernaturally in the crazy things he went through, which he's going to lay out some of them later in this book, it was supposed to make them say, you know what, that comfort is there for me too. If he could help Paul in that, then he can help me where I am. And many of us have had this experience. You look at other believers' lives and you say, man, if God can help them there, he's going to be there for me too. It's kind of the difference between, you know, you can watch a boxer warm up somewhere or practice and you can see the skill that they have, but the skill is really on display when they're taking punches from somebody else. Then that's when it's really on display. And what you see is Paul could say, God comforts me in all my comfort, and you could be like, okay. But then when you saw what happened to Paul, <laughs> right, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I believe you. Because it's got to be supernatural. And Paul was okay with that. He understood this was part of the process, what God was literally doing in his life. And so he says, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so in, in like manner, our consolation also abounds through Christ. We're following Christ. We're obeying him. We face hardship and difficulty. And he gives us the comfort we need in the middle of all of that. It abounds as well. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So when you see this, you're going to have hope. You're going to be encouraged in the salvation of God, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer, Paul knew. These people are going to face the same thing. They're going to face the same hardships. If they want to live for Christ, all those who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Paul knew that. Jesus said it. Servant's not greater than his master. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. You're going to face hardship. We're going to face trials and difficulties. And so Paul said, I want you to have the consolation of seeing that God meets us in those trials and difficulties. And Paul was called in a unique way to be an example of that. So he said, if we are comforted at the end of six, it is also for your consolation and salvation. When they see God comfort us in the middle of these hardships, you can be encouraged too. Now, all of us are called to this in some measure. As I said, some are called uniquely. Job, I think we know him, had the ministry of affliction and consolation. Early in the book of Job, God calls Job, my servant Job. And then at the end of the book, chapter 42, he calls him, my servant Job. What did Job do? He suffered and trusted in God. That was it. He faced extreme difficulty and hardship and trusted in God. And his life has been a consolation and an example to untold thousands since then. You can think of believers, certainly even in our day and age, you think of a person like Adoniram Judson or David Livingston or Johnny Erickson, who are an example of the strong consolation, the comfort that's in Christ Jesus. None escape this completely. All of us face afflictions in some measure, but it's for our consolation and salvation, Paul says, that you see no matter what difficulties are out there, God's comfort is stronger. I want you to see that in me, he's saying. And he was confident about it so much that he could say in verse 7, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so you will partake of the consolation. Paul is totally confident that 
whatever they're going to face, you, you're going to partake of the sufferings, but you will also partake of the consolation, the comfort, God walking alongside of you and keeping you. That, that was what he was confident in. I think that's important because very often our focus, again, goes to the sufferings, right? All of us can fear those things. Even those, some of us, our life might be really great right now, but we're just afraid of the suffering later, right? You're like, man, things are so good. I know something's got to go wrong, like, because we're that type of people. So we're fearing sufferings we don't even actually have, you know? Or, you know, you could do good in one area of life, and then these other fears come in. You're, you're on your own, and you're good. But then you marry somebody, and you're like, oh, now you're afraid for them. It seemed to be Abraham's tr- trouble, right? His family, he could trust God with his own life, but with his wife and his son and his father, that was harder for him. Or you have kids, and you think, oh, man, What's going to happen to them? What if, what if one of them dies? How could I handle it? Right? We have these things where we project these, these fears of afflictions over and over again. But you know what we never project? God's comfort. And what Paul is saying is, can't you see that no matter where he takes us, he is greater than whatever suffering or hardship or difficulty we might be in? And most of us aren't in the lead example type category like Paul was. (laughs) We're just normal life. Facing hardships, everybody. You don't have to down them. They are what they are. But the point is, do we find confidence in him? Paul trusted more in the consolation than he feared the reality of the difficulty. We can find confidence in suffering, but that confidence doesn't come in ourselves. It comes in the God of all comfort. And God walking with me, taking me under his arm, and providing what I need, because he's the God of all comfort. Because he can't lie, and he says it. Because he promised it through his Holy Spirit. Because it's based on everlasting things, and is strong. Because he is who he said he is. So what does it look like? Right, We could throw these Christian phrases out. What does it look like to trust God? I think it looks like loving God more than fearing for myself. I think that's what it looks like. I'm going to love God more than I'm going to fear for myself. And what Paul wants them to understand here is I'm fully confident that that even though you might be partakers of the sufferings, you'll be a partaker of the consolation. You've seen it in me. It's been for your own good. Everything I say about God is true. And there's always going to be something of a mystery as to why God allows evil things to happen. But part of the answer the Bible gives us when we struggle, when we have hardships and difficulties, and I think this is, this is important for us to see, is part of the answer is he says, I never give you just difficulty. I'm the God of all comfort. I will also walk with you. Don't turn to these other things, because you'll get let down, because I don't promise comfort through those. I claim comfort as my own. And as you face the suffering, you will also be a partaker of the consolation, the encouragement that's in me. And there's way more of that in me than there is of hardship in the world. And people might not like that answer. That's fine, but that's what the Bible says. And it's proved true in a whole lot of lives over and over and over again. And it's going to continue to prove true because he is who he says he is. And it's important for us to remember that And I also think it's important to remember, for the person who doesn't like that, it doesn't change anything, right? The atheist still has to answer the same question. Why is there difficulty and hardship in the world? It's not like they can blast the cancer or the evil that they're seeing. No, they still go through the same thing, except the difference is they go through it alone. No God. No purpose. No heavenly reward. No promise of an everlasting arm underneath 
to bring consolation that's, that's greater than the difficulty. Their suffering doesn't help them or others. It's meaningless. No harvest, no reward, no future, no purpose. We, on the other hand, we're not alone. Our Father is the God of all mercies, who is with us. And in suffering, we can please him and even be a means of strength to others. His strength can be made perfect in our weaknesses. Our difficulties can mean something in God's eternal purposes and kingdoms. And in the end, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's what the Bible says. So the danger here is to not be steadfast when we face these things, to not hope in the consolation that God's going to play his part, that he just leaves us to the sufferings and that's it. C.S. Lewis, I think he, he shared this. He writes a book called A Grief Observe. His wife passed away. I don't know if you know that. And in his book, A Grief Observe, he's just observing his own grief and making comments about it. Uh, it's an enlightening book. Sharp mind, obviously, so he has some unique things that he notices. But one thing he said that stood out to me in that book was this. He said, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Right? And the reason I say that is because that's the danger here. When we don't see who God is and the type of comfort he promises, if we think it comes through other ways, then we get offended. We stumble. Like C.S. Lewis said, we might not say, well, there's no God after all, but we might say, so this is who he really is? But what, fortunately, for Paul and the Corinthians and Lewis, fortunately, these things are true. This is what they found. The God who came alongside of him and helped him up in all his sufferings would do the same for them and for us because it is who he is. And do I love him more than I fear for myself? Or can you trust God? Can you trust him? Now, Paul will say this, verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul wants them to know, again, this isn't uh, Paul sitting down teaching a class facing none of these things. He's saying, no, look, and even as I'm writing this, even as he was writing 1 Corinthians, Paul was facing incredible difficulty himself. He can confess that we don't know what the specific danger is here. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble that came to us in Asia. Apparently they knew. Maybe Titus or Timothy, who had been with them, shared those things. We don't know. Paul doesn't give us exactly what danger he's talking about. There are a lot of people who speculate, but if he doesn't tell us, there's no sense in speculating. Paul had an endless list of dangers that he went through, so he just can reference whatever this one was. And he says, they were in the place that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, in verse 8, so that we despaired even of life. They faced so much trouble, whatever that was, that him and his companions despaired of life. Paul says the sentence or the answer, your Bible may say, of death was in ourselves. What, what that means is not that they were saying they were ready to commit suicide. The idea is they had no hope for themselves living. Whatever the situation was, if you said, 
hey, what do you think the outcome is going to be here? He says, the answer we had was death. We're going to die. That was the answer. When he says we had the answer of death, that was, that was what he's talking about. He's like, what's going to happen here? We're going to die. That's what's going to happen here. What, whatever the situation was, they had basically chalked it up to we're not getting out of this one. We're going to die here. And we don't know how he was delivered or what happened, but, but Paul had basically given up hope of being able to live. This is how God's going to take me home. So in looking back, Paul can literally say 10 or the end of the second half of nine, excuse me, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. The reason God allowed the sentence of death to be in us, allowed us to get to the point where we thought there's no hope we're going to die, is so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and he will still deliver us. To, to lay out the principle that, again, he had just given them, that in, in the difficulties that come to us in life, my job is not to hope in myself. Maybe, uh, again, hope in ourselves, lose confidence in ourselves. I think that um, maybe that's Bible language. It's hard to put in practical reality. When we say hoping in ourselves, Maybe I could say in controlling or manipulating the situation. Paul had lost all hope in being able to do anything that would make a difference in the scenario. We, we do so many things we do because we think those things control the scenario. We've had a lot of examples of that recently. And what happens is it could be from the biggest things to the smallest things. You know, you can... Think drinking your special herbal mix is going to save you, you know, in the morning. And if I don't get that, I'm going to die or something, right? We have we have all these various kind of ideas of if I do these things, it will control the scenario. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible, but the reality is, I can be responsible and still understand I'm not in control. But as we do things, we actually believe that we're in control. That this is the thing that's in control of the situation. And what Paul says is, we had no hope in ourselves. And why did God allow us to get there? So that we could come to the consolation that God who raises the dead takes care of us. He raised us. He delivered us. So if I ever come to another scenario where you ask me what's going to happen here, I'm going to die been here, done that. And why could Paul have confidence and hope? Not because he had so much control, because he had surrender. His peace was not in his control. His peace was in his surrender. His surrender to God's control. His surrender of trust to the God of all comforts. His surrender to the one, he says, who raises the dead. Guess what? Even if we died, we wouldn't lose we still win. God's still in control. Right? That's, in the end, all of our ultimate problem is we're going to die. You have a lot of other things you're trying to control in life. Your job, people at work, relationships around you. We try to manipulate and do things to control situations. We convince ourselves that we're doing it. The reality is we're not. We're not in control of anything. But the, the moment that makes it obvious is when we're slipping out of this life. And what gives me hope in that moment? If it's not the God of all comfort, I don't know what it is. If it's not him who raises the dead, I don't know what it is. When I get there one day, my hope is not that I'm going to have so much strength. <laughs> my hope is that Jesus is on the boat with me. If I'm on the boat with him, then it's okay. It's going to be cool in the boat. That's, that's what my hope is. My hope is in him. And Paul says, God taught us this lesson, even to the point of death. He's the apostle. I thought I was dead. He's, he delivered. 
And he did deliver us, and he does deliver us, and he will deliver us. Past, present, future, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is who he is. And I just think this picture of where God comes into play in our troubles and where we find our comfort and encouragement is so important for us in this day and age to understand and have faith in who he is because he's still the same. Verse 11, Paul also says this, you also, he wants them to be encouraged, helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul used an interesting word, that Greek word for helping together is only used here in the New Testament, and it's just a very basic word for an assistant or for a helper. Right? So he, he just simply says, your prayers, their intercessory prayers, contribute to the comfort and deliverance that he experienced. He wants them to know that. Your guy's prayer makes a difference. Now I want you to know, it's part of God's work. It's part of how God works comfort and deliverance in individual lives. Which, you know, I, sometimes it can feel, this feels unspiritual to say, but somebody's going through something really difficult, and if you say, like, hey, I'm praying for you, it feels like maybe that's not really enough. But what the Bible teaches very clearly is, if we do, it actually makes a difference. The Apostle Paul says, and you were helpers, you were our assistants in your prayers for us. Appreciate on a personal level, so again, so much uh, the individuals, so many of you just say you're praying for us, the pastors, for myself and the other pastors and our families. That's always amazing. Uh, so many other individuals here, you see them praying for one another. Like, that is a part of the way God works, comfort and consolation in the hearts and lives of other people. Never be discouraged in it. Paul says clearly that you also helping together in prayer for us. It is a help. It is an assist. It makes a difference. It adds to the comfort and the deliverance that God works. And it's how we can be involved in many lives and situations. And very often it's the main way that God allows us to be involved in other lives and in other situations. It's how God calls us to be helpers. Prayer matters. Prayer matters. And Paul says, you did that for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul's blessed and thankful for them. So I would just encourage you, if you are in particular difficulty tonight and you stumbled in and this was the message, I don't think it's coincidence. <laughs> for those of us maybe you're not in a particular hardship right now tonight, this is still really important for you to know because if God tarries, you will be one day. And you need to know where to look. And for all of us, it's important because we're all going to be a part of the ministry with those around us, saved and unsaved, of consolation, of encouragement. And you need to know how to bring the type of encouragement that will get people to God. That will actually put them in connection with the God of all comfort. And if you can do that, you're going to be a help to many. And God will be happy to be who he said he is. So let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just want to lift to you any of you that are here tonight or listening in that just need your comfort and consolation. I pray you would encourage them. I pray that you would come alongside of them. You promised, Lord, that you would never leave us, even until the end of the age. And I just pray that you would bring that consolation in the way that you know best, even to the supernatural where needed.
Heavenly Father, I think of you sending an angel to minister to your son after he was tempted in the wilderness, after he was bleeding drops of blood in Gethsemane. You met him where he needed it, physically, mentally, spiritually, and you're the same. And I pray, Lord, any of your sons and daughters here that need that from you tonight, that you would minister. We thank you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.